Alrighty. Five, four, three, two, one. Boys and girls, welcome back to a big Carnage House interview. I've got Dr. Bates Gill with me. How are you, sir? Hi, Dougal. Very well, thank you. You've had a very long career as a, a scholar, an author, and an academic policy advisor. I've got one of your books here, which I think is how, is how I first came to know you. I think I bought it at the airport. Oh, good. Uh, it's called China Matters, Getting It Right for Australia, which you co-wrote with Linda Jacobson. Yes, that's right. Um, and you talk about kind of hard power issues, soft power issues, and you're really an expert on US-China relations, Asia-Pacific security studies, um, and you hold, uh, you work as a professor at Macquarie University in right. the security studies and criminology department. So the first thing I want to ask you is about North Korea. And North Korea seems to have hung around like a dark cloud, it seems, for like maybe decades. And the Western world, at least as far as I can tell, doesn't really know what to do with it. Now, Donald Trump has been talking to Kim Jong-un a lot. They've had a few conferences and they're trying to bring China into the mix as well, incorporate maybe things like the US's trade deficit with China into like fixing North Korea. How do you rate Donald Trump's approach to North Korea and trying to create some type of stability or security in the region? Well, uh, he hasn't done much. Um, it's been, a, I think, a rather uh, unsuccessful effort he's undertaken. And in some ways, unfortunately, um, by meeting with Kim uh, twice, I think it is now, uh, once in Singapore, uh, uh, and again, um, he met him in North Korea, and stepping into North Korea, uh, the first American president to do that, uh, has given the North Korean leader an enormous amount of international legitimacy, uh, almost um, acceptance, you know, of, the, of his leadership and his rule, with almost zero, and you could say less than zero, in return. Um, as President, you know, th this was started before President Trump, but we can certainly say that during the three and a half years of President Trump's presidency, three years of his presidency, there has been no uh, um, reduction in the threat which North Korea poses to the United States. Uh, there certainly has been no rollback in uh, the North Korean nuclear program. Uh, and if anything, uh, most intelligence analysts would argue that North Korea is in a stronger position, at least militarily speaking, vis-a-vis -vis the United States than it was three or four years ago. So we have not seen the kind of progress we'd like to see there. Um, I mean, we can talk about why that might be or, or what, the, what the problems are. Um, clearly, it's a big problem. I mean, North Korea is a nuclear weapons state, uh, de facto. Um, uh, that's a big issue, obviously, and one that's difficult to negotiate away. Um, I think the president, I think, naively believed that somehow through charm and bluster uh, and maybe getting the Chinese on, on board, uh, he could turn the screws in a way that would bring Kim to heel. But that's not happening. When you hold nuclear weapons in your hand, uh, when you hold the threat of annihilating South Korea, uh, when you have the Chinese um, in a way, happy to see Washington deeper and deeper in this quagmire of, of, uh, of discussions with North Korea, uh, that adds up to a fair bit of leverage on North Korea's part, uh, which the United States is always going to have a very hard time dealing with.
and so we are where we are today, uh, which is unfortunately, I think, a gradual acceptance, de facto acceptance, of North Korea as a nuclear weapon state, not a good state of affairs. What do you think we should do? Well, uh, it's no easy answer. And of course, this is a problem that President Clinton, President Bush, President Obama, and now President Trump have all tried to manage. Um, I think a phased approach, which would state as its long-term aim uh, the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, uh, could work, uh, but that's going to take decades. And it would require some very, very serious diplomacy uh, and quite frankly, uh, a willingness on the part of the United States to put a lot on the table. Um, because you have to incentivize uh, the North Koreans uh, to give up their nuclear weapons. Uh, why would they do that if they believe that the United States ultimately has the aim of destroying it, uh, or undermining it, or removing a regime change? All of those, I think you could argue, positive outcomes in some respects, uh, but ones that clearly we can understand why the leadership in Pyongyang uh, doesn't want to accept. Um, so uh, this has been tried before. This is nothing new. You know, putting, putting incentives on the, on the table, offering up economic assistance, um, you know, some measures that maybe the president thought he was going to be able to achieve by offering up some sort of legitimacy and diplomatic recognition. Uh, that those sorts of things would you know, uh, ease the concerns that the North Koreans have about what we're really up to. Um, but it hasn't been enough, and uh, it's, it, it's going to require decades of trying to instill confidence in the North Korean leaders that we don't actually have their demise in mind, uh, and that we can provide security guarantees of various types to them, which they can which they would ultimately actually believe that we're serious uh, in return for uh, giving up their nuclear program. Quite honestly, what I think is going to be the, the best near-term outcome, and by near-term I mean the next five to ten years, at best, uh, would be a kind of, you know, an Israel option uh, where a kind of bomb in the basement. Um, we know that they have nuclear weapons. Everyone knows they have nuclear weapons. Uh, but they take steps uh, to not increase the number of nuclear weapons, uh, to slow their testing program or even stop their nuclear weapons testing program, stop their nuclear missile program, uh, demate, you know, demonstrably demate weapons from uh, delivery systems. I think they are now, but demonstrate that. In other words, lower the threat uh, which their nuclear weapons pose to the United States and Japan and South Korea um, as a way of simply bringing some calm to the situation. And I think that's kind of where we are now. Uh, and if we can keep it at that uh, mm. for another five or ten years, then maybe the overall diplomatic and strategic situation will change in a way that we can get to denuclearization down the road. But mm. I'm not optimistic. Seems like a bit of a quagmire. Yes. Now, I, my understanding is that there's never been a war declared on a country that has nuclear weapons. Um, and so if you're North Korea, 
it seems like maybe the first way of self-protection is to just have a bunch of nukes aimed at Seoul and Tokyo. Um, and if you have that, it would prevent the US, you know, it, starting a regime change war like we see in the Middle East or something. Um, I mean, we saw China, I believe in like the 1960s, I think under Chairman Mao, get nukes as I think they just locked a bunch of nuclear scientists up in, in a nuclear facility for years and years and said, you'll see your family once you make the nukes. And I mean, if you get past the fact that they're kind of a, a crazy totalitarian um, kind of insert negative adjective regime there, um, it is seems like very much in their self-interest to, to, to build and retain and develop their nuclear capacity. Is, ha, is, what type, in, in what world could you show them or demonstrate to them that denuclearization was a safer option for them than developing it's their It's very, very capacity? difficult. I mean, they need look no further than what happened to Saddam Hussein, mm -hmm. uh, what happened to Muammar Gaddafi. I mean, really brutal and nasty. Uh, ends of their lives, um, in part they would see it, North Korea would see it, in part because they had taken decisions at some point previously not to pursue uh, the nuclear option. So, you know, that lesson alone is, is pretty powerful to the likes of, um, uh, of the leadership in North Korea. So from that perspective, yes, we can say, well, we understand why they might see things that way. On the other hand, you could also make the argument, though, that as long as they have nuclear weapons, uh, North Korea, it's highly unlikely that they are going to achieve the kind of international acceptance, a removal of sanctions, uh, uh, bringing about a larger peaceful environment around their territory, um, you know, removal of the United States military from South Korea. Um, uh, even China, I think, uh, is not exactly happy that North Korea has nuclear weapons. I mean, uh, they will try to massage the strategic situation with regard to North Korea as best as possible to their advantage, and who can blame them? Um, but uh, it's not a good thing to have a nuclear-armed neighbor. It's just not. Um, and, and, and North Korea is unpredictable and all the rest. And as long as North Korea has those weapons, that means the United States is going to be in on that. The Japanese are going to be leaning forward. None of that's good for China. Mm -hmm. So um, you can argue that, okay, maybe it's the ultimate guarantor of you and your family's safety. But, you know, it also is going to mean many more decades going forward of impoverishment, sanctions, um, isolation, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Well, we see China has nukes, and I think Pakistan might have nukes as well. Do you think there's a way to kind of start a process of have uh, as like a hypothetical bringing North Korea like slowly into the international world order in the same way we've we've seen China do? Um, doubtful. Um, China. Uh, I mean, th there's all sorts of international legal and arms control uh, issues at play here. Uh, that we can say that you know, China had been outside of, has now joined, and, and by and large has been in good standing in them. Um, of course, North Korea is never going, to, it's highly unlikely that North Korea would ever achieve this sort of um, international integration, um, uh, international economic weight and importance and diplomatic and all the rest that China has. Um, so I, 
it will be difficult to, to achieve that. I think we may well already be in a kind of de facto uh, acceptance of North Korean nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, by, by international law of the, of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, for example, uh, you know, we do not accept, legally speaking, that, that Israel has nuclear weapons, but everyone knows they do. We do not accept that India has nuclear weapons. Um, it's outside of the NPT, uh, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, so is Pakistan. Um, but that doesn't mean that they don't have them, and it doesn't mean that we haven't figured out how to live in a world in which they do, right? Mm. We do. Um, so I think we're moving in that same general direction for North Korea. Um, but in many respects, you know, North Korea is no China, North Korea is no India. North Korea is not even a Pakistan, you know, in the same sort of heft and strategic importance. So while we may end up accepting the situation, I'm not sure it gains a lot for North Korea ultimately in terms of integration and um, sort of broader acceptance in, into the international community. Okay, interesting. Let's talk about the South China Sea. And there's a lot of different competing national and, and some, in some respects international interests at play there. It's a very confusing situation even for me who spent some time in China. Um, and there are different claims, like historically and I guess militarily, to the land and islands that are at play. Can you briefly explain kind of what we see in the South China Sea right now? Well, you're right to say that it's complicated, and I can't lay claim to being fully across all of the, those complicated aspects. Uh, but I think, generally speaking, we can say this. Uh, China claims, uh, has ill-defined claims as to its uh, sovereignty over the entire sort of territory of the South China Sea, including the waters. Uh, the best we have out of China uh, in terms of the definition is this so-called nine-dashed line, uh, which even China does not say uh, delimits or fully defines what it means by its sovereignty over the South China Sea. Rather, it says things like, uh, you know, we have historical claims. Um, you know, we have historic, we, we've been historically uh, in these waters, and that gives us a certain degree of sovereignty. Now, the and problem with that's that... That's because of the oil in the islands, right? Is that, is that what's valuable about... Well, uh, you know, we've heard for a long, long time that there are these vast energy deposits. Um, I don't think we've yet seen the evidence that that's entirely true. There's some, uh, but I don't think it's to the degree that yet that some of the more positive and optimistic folks would right. suggest. Um, I'm sure there are there are certainly resource questions. You know, it's not just it's not just the oil and gas deposits. It's fisheries, extremely mm -hmm. important fisheries, uh, you know, fish stocks there. Um, but maybe even more, I think more important than either of those is is the broader sovereignty question. Uh, this is an issue of pride and sort of international uh, legitimacy and um, expectation, I think, on the part of the Chinese to be uh, given, you know, sort of granted, if you will, uh, the acceptance of the international community that this area is one where China's the hegemon, China is the dominant power, and um, it wishes to 
assert control there uh, in a way not dissimilar in my view, for example, uh, than say the United States might wish to lay claim to the Caribbean Ocean, right? I mean, the United States does not make territorial claims, specific territorial claims over the entire Caribbean Ocean. Uh, but I think everybody understands um, who's running the show there. Um, you know, not even a sovereign country of Cuba uh, is able to oust the United States off of the corner of its island, Guantanamo, right? Where the United States has been for decades and decades, basically saying, we're here, what are you going to do about it? Um, I think China would like something similar, you know, that there's a, just a sort of international acceptance of who's boss in that area. Now that said, there are specific territorial claims, and that's where it really gets quite confusing. Um, and of course you have the case of China actually building islands uh, that they now wish to uh, have then territorial seas around, right? Um, and that is you know, just entirely contrary to, to international law. And, and it's not only building those islands so that they can then extend uh, you know, their territorial claim, but of course they've militarized several of them mm -hmm. as well. Um, now there's a lot of question as to whether or not those are just big fat targets uh, for a superior technologically sophisticated adversary to destroy in relatively quick time, uh, or whether they have meaningful military purpose. And that's a debate that is ongoing in the field. But anyway, just the long story short, highly contested area for resource reasons, for sovereignty reasons, for national pride reasons. Uh, highly contested area as well because it's such an important um, uh, area for the passage of international trade. And it's extremely important to others like the United States who uh, want to assert you know, as full and absolute freedom of navigation in international waters as possible. The U.S. is a maritime power. Uh, that's normal. And natural. Um, so all of these issues converge in a way that make this a very highly contentious and mm. contested area. Yeah, I have heard some talk about the kind of trade, the maritime trade um, passages. And because China relies, I think, a, a lot on, on imports, right? China exports a lot, but also relies a lot on imports. And my understanding is a lot of the arguments coming out of China is that, well, if we don't control uh, the, the seaways, we could be strangled on food or resources within two or three weeks, right? Yeah. And as a national security interest, we're just going to take it and, and I don't care what, what you say. And I think that's a pretty hard, pretty hard argument to kind of reject based on international law in the sense that I don't know how much we are actually committed to international law in, for example, like allied operations in the Middle East, right? My understanding is that there's a lot of international law which kind of gets waived um, for us to pursue operations there. Um, but then at the same time you have, I think, these like the Hague court ruling or something which says most of the South China Sea should go to the Philippines. I guess, how, how important do you think international law is in these disputes and how much should we respect it as opposed to just giving in to the powers that are in the region? Let me, I'll, I'll try to respond to that, but let me just make uh, a few words about a very important point you made, and that is China's vulnerability to um, disruptions in their external trade. Very, very important. You consider um, 
just how dependent China is on the openness of seaways, especially to its eastern seaboard. Um, and if you look at a map, unfortunately we don't have one to really point to here, but we'll not be able to throw one up. Around, around China is what's known as the first island chain. You hear that word bandied about a fair bit when we talk about the geopolitics and geostrategy of China. The first island chain. Now basically that is a sort of imaginary line that you could draw from the southern tip of the uh, Korean Peninsula and then extending southward through the Japanese islands, especially the, um, the far southern islands of Japan, Taiwan, into the Philippines, and sort of around the bottom of the South China Sea, you've got the Indonesian archipelago, and up to uh, Vietnam. This is a barrier. This, this is a potentially threatening and, and already challenging geopolitical problem for China. Sometimes it's described as you know, the Malacca dilemma. Um, when you consider that such an enormous amount of energy and uh, raw materials, uh, agricultural goods, um, uh, and of course Chinese exports as well, pass through the Malacca Strait. Um, if you were to shut that down somehow, uh, which militarily would probably not be an overly difficult thing to do, um, that would be devastating for China. So it's a problem, not just the Malacca Strait, but these other small passages that could get out into the open ocean past the first island chain. And who's on the first island chain? United States, Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, all US allies. Um, and so China's dilemma here is to figure out a way, not necessarily to control or dominate or invade, but to develop a military that is capable of um, either deterring uh, action by others to, that might block that first island chain and, and bring China to its knees, potentially to its knees economically, or if necessary, defeat uh, in that maritime area an enemy that's, that's determined to do that to them, right? So I think building out its presence in the South China Sea is a part of a much longer-term strategy that is going to try to deal with that problem. Um, how does that then affect international law? Um, well, the Chinese have rejected the Hague uh, Arbitral uh, Tribunal's decision on its claims uh, in the South China Sea. This was a, a, a case that the Philippines had brought. Um, so international law is sort of on the side, I guess, of the rest of the world that says, you know, China, you don't have sovereign claims over a lot of what you're claiming there. Um, but China's rejected it. So the question is, does international law matter here? Well, maybe not. Uh, because uh, the last time I looked, the Hague Tribunal does not have an army. And who is going to enforce the Hague Tribunal decision? Mm. No one. Um, we all say the right thing, and I think it's right always to say, well, look, this is international law, we have to abide by the rule of law, etc. But um, there is no military, not even the United States, that is fully prepared to enforce these uh, decisions, right? The best that we see happening, or you know, the only thing really available to militaries or to governments that want to sort of assert and, and, tr and try to reinforce or underscore the importance of these decisions uh, 
would be like the United States, perhaps other militaries that, that carry out these so-called freedom of navigation uh, operations, which the United States claims are fully compliant with international law. Uh, China claims often are not. Well, even just yesterday, there was a news article I read before I came in that the U.S. had sent a naval patrol past two Chinese military outposts, which the Chinese weren't too happy about. They called right. it provocative, and sure. that the U.S. should could, should withdraw. Yes. An extra interesting point um, that came up when I talked to Professor James Lawrenson from the Australia-China Relations Institute at UTS was that China actually owns at least a big part, or maybe the whole thing, of uh, the Philippines' uh, key electrical grid, and even though they're in this they're in this territorial dispute over the South China Sea, that you haven't seen that as leveraged as uh, you know for, for China's benefit in the region, which I thought was an interesting point. Um, what I want to uh, ask finally on this South China Sea question is: Should we care? Should we be there? Should we do anything about it, or should we just let whatever happens happen in the region? We meaning here in Australia, Australia, US. I think we should definitely care. Um, and while our options are relatively limited, uh, you know, it's, it's not like we're going to invade those militarized islands and try and push the Chinese off it. You know, the, neither the United States nor Australia has any territorial claim there, right? Hmm. Uh, the official policy is that, you know, we don't have a dog in the fight in terms of the sovereign claims. We simply want them to be resolved peacefully and we want them to be resolved on the basis of international law, right? And in the meantime, um, what we will do is assert our uh, lawful uh, rights to operate uh, in those seas according to international law. Um, and that's considered provocative by China because they don't accept uh, all the international uh, legal um, views and, 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 and decisions that the United States and Australia and others are using to assert their rights within mm -hmm. the South China Sea. So what can we do? Um, I think to a small degree uh, there's been some pullback on China's part. Uh, I think they got the message pretty clearly from the international community that this was not acceptable. Um, it may just be a simple matter of one step back and pretty soon we're going to see two steps forward again. That's, that's a very classic Chinese tactic. Wait for the international situation to calm a bit and then take measures to reassert themselves in, in those areas. Um, but uh, there's not a lot that can be done um, except to bolster uh, and I would say, yeah, bolster uh, the political, diplomatic, and yes, military um, presence uh, in and around the South China Sea, not just unilaterally by the United States or by Australia, but hopefully bilaterally, hopefully multilaterally with other claimant states in the region, um, to send the message to China that this is unacceptable and there is going to be pushback if they try again to further you know, push out that envelope in ways that impinge on other person's sovereign claims. And that ultimately, the answer here is to accept uh, international law, arbitra arbitra arbitral tribunals, decisions, work with the other claimants to find a peaceable outcome. Hmm. Now, One Belt, One Road is 
an economic, a kind of an outward-looking economic policy from China to essentially, my understanding, recreate the ancient trading Silk Road. Um, those trade routes throughout Asia. I think they even go to Africa. And uh, China has offered Australia and I believe a range of Western countries uh, the option to participate in the One Belt One Road policy. And I think Australia signed a memorandum of understanding, but nothing ultimately eventuated. Uh, and so China has embarked on this kind of economic policy where they go and give loans to different countries uh, to build key infrastructure. There are people concerned or people accusing China of kind of debt trap diplomacy um, because maybe the interest rates on the loans are too high and then they end up taking that key infrastructure of the country that was collateral. Do you see the One Belt, One Road policy as kind of a good, well-intentioned economic policy? Do you see it has potentially bad strategic uh, outcomes? Uh, and and what, how do you think we should be responding to it? Right. Well, like the South China Sea and like so many things in China, this is extremely um, complicated picture here. Uh, so I don't think it's easy to, to just say, well, it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's both um, and everything in between. Um, it's just just to kind of come back on some of the points you made. Um, yes, the the Chinese leadership wants us to think about it as simply a hearkening back to the Silk Road. I mean, the Silk Road has all these romantic um, you know, ideas and, and background, and you know, it's it's so much more than that. This is a, this is this is grand strategy, I believe, um, that has that has potentially an enormous amount of benefit for China. It's it's fully understandable why they're doing what they're doing. We talked a little while ago about the Malacca dilemma. Well, one way to get around the Malacca dilemma is to develop your capacity to uh, economically engage and extract value from the vast continental Asia, right? Um, which includes big parts of China, right? So this is this is part a domestic development program, pushing west off the east off the eastern seaboard, getting places like you know, uh, Sichuan, um, Tibet, uh, Xinjiang, very important, right? Uh, to economically develop that precisely as a way to pacify uh, the Muslim region of Xinjiang. Uh, and then to push out into the vast Central Asian regions uh, and take advantage of those continental connections rather than being so dependent upon, you know, the maritime approaches. Um, but of course, Belt and Road is two things, right? There's the, um, there's the belt, which is the inland routes, and all the train lines and the connectivity that they're trying to develop um, through Central Asia into parts of South Asia and all the way to Europe. And then, strangely, a maritime road, the maritime road, which is developing port facilities and maritime um, trade routes along the southern littoral of, of Asia and all the way over to Africa. So uh, it, it has this sort of um, grand strategy element to it. But what's been most concerning, of course, is, as you've suggested, it's the um, investment that's being made in developing these, these deeper economic ties, mostly through infrastructure development, um, which many view as being either you know, under, undertaken in sort of unfair ways, potential for debt trap, although you know, when, you, when you consider that this is a, at least a trillion dollar undertaking, and you could tote up all the debt trap um, examples, and it's a small percentage. So, while it is happening, um, you know, it's not. It doesn't seem to be the overwhelming case that 
countries that engage in the Belt and Road are destined for debt trap problems. Um, but what it is, it, it's, it's creating um, a strategic environment where countries want to work with China, that see China not as a threat, but as an economic opportunity, right? Um, it's precisely a strategy to deflect the fear and concerns that China's neighbors and beyond would naturally have when they see a rising power on the horizon. It's a way of trying to diffuse that concern and fear by, well, in some cases, legitimately delivering benefit. Um, but I think in a larger strategic and political picture, it's a way of creating acceptance for China and its way of doing business uh, and its way of operating um, with international, uh, in the international community. Um, they know they're up against a lot of pushback out there. It's just natural that a rising power is going to face that. They also know that a lot of countries around the world don't like their form of government. They know that a lot of countries around the world um, don't think they play fair economically. They know they're up against a battle to get accepted. And Belt and Road is a very important piece of this strategy to do so. So what do we do? Um, to my knowledge, the Australian government is so far not formally signed on to uh, working within the uh, Belt and Road. The government of Victoria has. Um, and so that's division sort of within the federal system, which is interesting to follow. Uh, Japan has taken a slightly different route, not formally signing on to the Belt and Road, but Prime Minister Abe has gone to uh, Beijing and said, why don't, why don't we work together, Japan and China, to help develop infrastructure in third-party countries. So it's not Belt and Road exactly, but it's a sort of acknowledgement that um, China does have something to bring to the table. Maybe it just needs to be done in a way that is more acceptable and within the international norms. Um, so I, my personal view is that Australia's made the right decision. Um, there's, there's no need which is basically a political, it's basically a political decision to sign on. It, it, it's a memorandum of understanding. It doesn't mean anything. Um, rather, uh, why not see if there are ways that Australian firms uh, might be able to find um, you know, contracts uh, with projects that have been given the label Belt and Road in third-party areas. Uh, and bring to the table Australian sensibilities, Australian norms, Australian legal um, approaches that could then hopefully assure that these infrastructure projects do unfold in ways that are fair, transparent, uh, environmentally sustainable, and all the rest. Um, you know, somewhat similar to Australia's decision to join the uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the AIIB, which was a Chinese initiative, uh, the argument there was being inside the tent uh, was a better way of making sure that that organization does operate on international standards rather than being outside and just letting China run it the way they liked. Mm. And most analysts believe that, with regard to the AIIB at least, um, it has basically worked out that way. Mm. You mentioned kind of China's a path towards being accepted on the world stage. And I think it's really quite interesting, and one of the things maybe we can get to if we have time, is 
part of the Confucius Institute and there's been some um, conjecture in Australia about that and I've personally been involved in the Confucius Institute. But before we get to that, this might be like a big question. Um, I want to see if you have any thoughts. Do you, do you positively see the potential for China to be well integrated into the international system or do you like, I've heard some people say that there might be like an inevitable conflict. Do you, ha what's your projection for kind of peace as China continues to grow? Well, you know, China is integrated into the international system. I mean, that's just a fact, and it's, it's, it's unfolded over the past 40 years or so. And I think you can make a pretty good argument that the avoidance of conflict with China, the fact that there has been no major power war uh, in, um, in Asia, e East Asia, uh, since the Vietnam War, really, uh, so since the since the say the late seventies or early eighties, is in part um, a result of the overall sort of economic dynamic which we've seen in Asia over the past forty years, um, of which China is right at the center, right, um, and that that has created this overall dynamic in the region that you know economic prosperity is the priority, uh, warfare is not. Um, and that through that process, we've seen this remarkable uh, integration and globalization, not just of China, but a lot of you know all the countries of the region. Um, so China is integrated. Um, I think the question now is, are we reaching a tipping point? Are we reaching a, a, an inflection point where, because of that success story that China has enjoyed economically, because of its integration into the international community and all the benefits that have accrued to it, uh, it's now becoming a threat, actually. Um, it is overtaking you know, the United States in some regards. It's certainly nipping at its heels in lots of others. Uh, and this creates a lot of angst and, and uncertainty and uh, worry. Um, leading even then to the, the idea that is being floated in many parts of the world, not least in Washington, of decoupling. In other words, dis integration uh, of this story uh, unplugging from China, uh, trying to find ways to deny China's integration into all kinds of aspects of the international system, whether it's you know the international technology uh, marketplace, uh, international financial marketplaces, investment, you know, uh, opportunities, on and on and on, you know, unplugging, containing, basically, trying to, trying to sort of put some sort of hermetic seal uh, around China, you know, in a way that would slow its, its rise, hmm. and in the view of those who would argue, not just slow its rise, but, but stop its threat, stop, stop its challenge to American leadership, uh, etc. Uh, we're at an inflection point, and it's already happening. We're beginning to see aspects of decoupling. Um, I guess the question for scholars or for theorists of international relations is, if integration has been such an important factor in peace and stability, uh, does disintegration quite naturally then lead to the opposite? And I think there's a pretty good argument that it could. Um, in other words, if we're serious about decoupling, if we're serious about taking steps to try and uh, deny China 
uh, it integration into the international community and, and somehow slow its rise, then we'd better be ready for the consequences of that. Mm. Um, because it will mean, uh, it will have economic uh, ripple effects on the international community. Um, just take, take the coronavirus problem. I mean, that's unintended decoupling, uh, but it's clearly a, an example of what happens when barriers begin to rise uh, between China and the international community, economic and otherwise. And we're seeing the economic mm. downsides of that mm. happening. But more than that, not just the economic consequences, ripple effects of decoupling, uh, I think China will take that for what it is, which is a threat uh, to its long-term prosperity, and will react. Mm. Uh, and if that's where we want to go, then uh, we better be prepared for what that's going to mean. Sure, I can imagine if I was China, I wouldn't be too happy about that. Um, and one of the things that China's doing to to let's say prevent that or develop people's kind of a pre cultural appreciation of China is the Confucius Institute. Now, I went to a high school that had a Confucius classroom. I then went on China on a Confucius scholarship for a few months. I'm now at a university that has a Confucius classroom. Now, at the same time, the New South Wales government previously had, I think, Confucius classrooms in a range of schools, but has since uh, taken them out because of, they did a report on it and the report said that there was no evidence of political influence but there was evidence of a perception of mm. political influence. Right. Yeah. Um, work that out. The New South Wales example was a bit, was politically uh, a bad look because there were actually um, Confucius Institute, or I should say, um, Chinese Ministry of Education, uh, Hanban, that's the Hanban that mm. runs the um, Confucius Institutes out of Beijing. They actually had persons embedded in the New South Wales Department of Education, just not a good look. Mm. Um, but you know, it's really interesting that you were uh, that you took some classes from the the mm. Confucius classroom. That's that's great. Um, in many ways, I think that's right. And if, I mean, you'd be in a better place than any to 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 let people know whether you felt you were somehow brainwashed. Yeah. There is some very interesting research now coming out because the Confucius institutes, Confucius classrooms have not been with us that long. I'm, I'm not sure how long, maybe about 10 years, maybe a yeah, little less. probably a little less than 10. Um, so we're now getting to the point where researchers can begin to do anthropological and other survey research with graduates of the classrooms or the institutes and ask them, you know, well, what happened to you, you know? Um, and interestingly, it, it, there's some decent evidence that for many, um, their experience in China especially led them to have a less favorable view towards China, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, which is sort of understandable in many ways. You know, China um, is romantic in some ways, but let's face it, you know, it's a, it's a one-party authoritarian place. Um, it has a lot of negatives to it. Mm -hmm. um, and so in some ways, being exposed to China uh, doesn't brainwash you to being positive towards China. It can often give you more realistic, which mm -hmm. includes negative mm -hmm. views of China. Um, so, uh, I mean, there's no doubt that Australia, the United States, the West, broadly, we need to do a much better job of educating ourselves about China. We need to be much smarter about China. Um, 
and that is going to have to include going there. It's going to have to include a lot of us doing a better job of learning the language and understanding the culture and understanding the, uh, you know, the literature and, and its history and, and why it does what it does. Um, if that can be done through something like the Confucius Institutes uh, and the perils of potential brainwashing can be mitigated or removed, then I think mm. it's great. Um, simply throwing them all out of here and accusing them of, 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 of having only nefarious uh, ends in mind and, and, and sort of not trusting, in a way, not trusting the people to make their own judgments you know, about what they're learning and what they're seeing um, may not be a good idea, especially if we, you know, the, the, the governments in Australia, the United States, elsewhere, are not then prepared to invest similar or more amounts in our learning and understanding of China. Sure. Well, that's that's one of the things that I found kind of. I thought it was just a really dumb move from the New South Wales Education Department to to pull them all out in the sense that there are, according to like a Sydney Morning Herald article, I think in the last few months, there's like a hundred non like ethnically non Chinese Australians who. Uh, speak or understand Chinese to a degree of HSK 5 or 6, which is basically where you can actually use it for business or um, doing things, right? It's the level above conversation. And then you get kids in high... Like, how many high school kids actually want to do Chinese? Like, hardly any. And so if you do get some that make it through to year 12, the chances that a public school is going to have the funds to run a Chinese class for one or two kids is just basically zero, right? And the Australian government said after they withdrew the program that they would front up the money, but that's just not going to happen, right? Mm. And so then from Hanban, what you actually get in a Confucius classroom is uh, a Chinese trainee teacher who comes to Australia and then stays in the classroom with you uh, and teaches you Chinese, so a native speaker who's being trained in teaching, as well as a bunch of extra funding to do cultural activities and, and stuff like that. And so when I was in the classroom, I found it, it really helped. I would go and meet with this guy at night times to practice my Chinese. And in terms of like the political influence of it, I found that Chinese was probably my least political class out of all my classes. I mean, if you go through the English curriculum or the history curriculum, I mean, it's full with, I mean, whatever your take on it is with like kind of social justice, um, political kind of literature. I mean, you even go and study physics and there's a change to the physics curriculum such that a lot of the questions were removing the calculations and in place doing uh, like paragraph short, short answer questions because that, uh, was more uh, favourable to girls' education, right? Because girls apparently tend to do better at, at writing answers than calculation answers. And so I was kind of very surprised when there's all this conjecture about it. Anyway, that's just kind of a long spiel because I felt like the people who were making those decisions didn't understand the thing, the, the, sub, the subject matter. Um, I mean, I'm going to a calligraphy writing class at the Confucius Institute next week. Um, but... I think that um, I didn't mean to just hijack the podcast for the last few minutes, but I think you've got some meetings to run to. Um, Now we could talk all day. I think. Well, I had a really good time talking with you. Now, before we go, we do have something uh, for you. This is a Carnage House T-shirt, which is available on website under the merchandise section, Uh, as well. I picked up this book at the airport, and this is called China Matters, Getting It Right for Australia, co-written by Dr. Bates Gill and Linda Jacobson. And 
It's got a lot of the content we talked about today, but also a lot more. And it's got a really nice synthesis of analysis and commentary, but it's also easy to read. And uh, there you go. You can wear that around. I'm sure everyone will, will love that. Thank you. Um, but so we'll put a link to this in the description. Uh, where can people you. find you though, if they wanna, if they wanna see, see what you're up to? Well, um, my Twitter feed is at uh, BeatsGill1. Uh, and of course, um, you know, come by, visit the website at the Macquarie University. I've got a lot of information about myself there if you want to catch okay, up. Okay, well, we'll put both of those links in the description. Uh, if you liked it, tell us in the comments, like the video, subscribe. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram. If you really like us, you can start donating to us on Patreon. Um, but other than that, we will see you next time. It's been fun, Dr. Gill. Hopefully, we'll see much. you again soon. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. All righty.